0: Today our Gospel reading is a nice long section from Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 through 54. It is so long, in fact, that the lectionary includes this small bit of guidance. A brief homily should take place, if appropriate. With the length of our passage, there are many aspects to explore, but today we will look at only one. We will focus our attention on the one thing Jesus said or not the one thing, he said multiple things, but on one of the things Jesus said prior to his death. It is something that I have shared with some of you already as I read this passage a couple of weeks ago and considered how many people think about what Jesus said in comparison to what Jesus meant by what he said. Therefore, we're going to jump to verse 45. Here at verse 45, the gospel tells us that it is the sixth hour, meaning noon. The sky grows dark and stays dark for three hours until the ninth hour, meaning three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, at the ninth hour, Jesus cries out, the text text tells us, with a loud voice. Not a whisper, not barely audible, not the weak voice of a person defeated. Jesus calls out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabathani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the words of our response during the Responsorial Psalm today. We said them over and over, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would Jesus claim to be forsaken? This is the question people from all different denominations have been trying to answer for centuries. I remember a sermon I heard as a child, and the person preaching said, God cannot look on sin, and when Jesus took on our sin, God looked away from Jesus. That is the moment Jesus was forsaken by God. It sounded good to me then. It seemed to make sense. I didn't realize then, and it took me many years of thinking about it to realize that it failed to explain how God the Father could forsake God the Son when according to the doctrine of the Trinity there must be a tri-unity and to forsake the Son would destroy that unity. The Bible scholar Donald Hagner admits that problem. First he claims that Jesus is forsaken because he's bearing our sin. Then admitting to make such a claim violates the doctrine of the Trinity. He sticks with what he has said, but adds, this is one of the most impenetrable mysteries of the entire gospel narrative. The Bible scholar Craig Blomberg claims that when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, it was at this moment Christ bore the sins of all humanity, spiritually separating him from his heavenly Father. He does not even acknowledge that his answer violates the doctrine of the Trinity. We could look or continue to look at these types of examples, but they're all about the same. They all break down to Jesus. Bearing our sins, God cannot look on sin, so God the Father looked away from God the Son. None explain how to get around the problem of such a belief violating the doctrine of the Trinity. Most will not even mention the conflict. So following the lectionary's guidance to keep today's homily brief, we will not bother with any more examples of people who are not asking the right question. But before moving on, let these previous examples and those like them serve as an example of why just because a person is a known scholar does not automatically mean you should trust what that person says. Those examples I've already given and the others that are like them ask, why would God the Father forsake God the Son? What those scholars should have been asking is, why would Jesus, God the Son, quote the beginning of the 22nd psalm. Bible scholar D.A. Carson comments that many scholars see Jesus's quote as the of the first verse of the psalm as a reference to the whole of Psalm 22, which begins with this sense of desolation but ends with triumphant vindication of the righteous sufferer. Carson explains that the Old Testament texts are frequently cited with their full context in mind. Back before the numbers were added to the scriptures, the rabbis in the temples would recite the first sentence of a psalm to refer to the entire psalm. Just like today, I can say four score and seven years ago and then suddenly stop. It does not matter that I stopped. You know that I'm talking about the famous Gettysburg Address. If I say we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and then stop, you know I'm talking about the Declaration of Independence. If I say we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, and then stop, you know I'm talking about the Constitution of the United States. To simply recite the first words of the psalm served the same principle, to turn your attention to the entire psalm, or at least the message of that psalm. Why would Jesus want people to think about, or even read, the 22nd psalm as he died? The theologian Daniel Harrington states, while not downplaying the mental and emotional suffering of Jesus, it is necessary to read the whole psalm and recognize the profession of trust in God's power that forms its climax. Therefore, let's take a look at the whole message of Psalm 22. In verses 8 and 9, we are told that he trusts in the Lord with the expectation, let the Lord deliver him. Psalms, excuse me, verse 17 to 20, explain that the enemy is gloating, but calls for the Lord to come to the quick rescue. Verses 23, 24, very much opposite of what some people claim when talking about God the Father turning away from Jesus. Verses 23 through 24 tell us to praise the Lord because, the, because God has not hidden his face, but has heard him when he cried out. And to close, verse 30-31 through explain that in the coming generations the people will proclaim his righteousness even to those still not yet born. In other words, when Jesus called out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was saying, I may look defeated now, but soon you and all generations will see my victory in righteousness. When we ask the right question, why would Jesus want us to read Psalm 22, we can understand that when even God seems to have abandoned him, Jesus' anguished prayer is that of a righteous sufferer. While the end of the psalm, which moves to a note of confident hope in God's power to save, is not spoken, the gospel will indeed end with Jesus' vindication. And we see that vindication of Christ immediately upon his physical death. The tombs opened, the dead are raised, the temple curtain is torn in two, the rocks are split, and the Roman centurion is so in awe that he immediately says, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Jesus was never forsaken. Jesus called out in a loud voice the words of victory. Amen.